Hi, I'm Rick Steves. On a big bus tour of Europe, the tour guide gets all the glory, but the bus driver is also a key player in the success of the trip. These unsung heroes are responsible for getting countless travelers around safely, on time, and together. Today, we're meeting one of the best. Ferdinando Mengi has been driving happy American tour groups around Europe for 20 years. He'll share some of his inside tricks of the trade about how a tour bus driver makes a living and makes lifelong friends. Plus, Jennifer Cox is back. She's the woman who quit her job in Britain to travel around the world seeking Mr. Right. After finding him, she wrote the book Around the World in 80 Dates. Today, Jennifer shares her tips for packing light and with style for an around-the-world adventure where romance is on the itinerary. We're traveling smart and looking good on today's Travel with Rick Steves. We'll get the adventure started right after this. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly. You don't have to bust your budget to enjoy rich and vivid experiences with fascinating people and cultures from around the world. That's why we're here. Whether you're preparing for an adventure overseas or you just want to dream about it, we're glad you can join us as we travel with Rick Steves. Call me at 877-333-RICK or email us at radio at ricksteves.com. Carolyn, in Oregon, thanks for your call. What is on your mind? I'm interested in travel. We've gone on the train before and have visited Europe twice before, but this time we want to rent a car, and we're in our 60s. I'm looking for ideas on how to find a mom-and-pop type lodging rather than to take some of the more um, same-here, same-there type of stay. I've just been uh, reading a lot of feedback from my my readers, and it is expensive for uh, Americans to travel in Europe these days, and some people are kind of shell-shocked, but they're all going to the famous big cities Uh where there's a lot of demand, and the hotels can charge a premium. If you've got a car and you're able to go to some of the smaller towns, I think your accommodations price is uh, cut by about 50%. That would be wonderful. And that almost justifies the the rental of a car. For a lot of people, a car is a splurge. But if you use that car to get to the humble little bed and breakfast in the countryside, you not only have a richer cultural experience, you save a lot of money. Is renting a car terribly expensive in Europe? No, it's um, actually, I think renting a car has become progressively a better deal compared to train travel in the last few years. doesn't mean train travel is not a good value, but tra- they've got this futuristic train system in Europe now where there's bullet trains lacing the continent together. And we all know about the English Channel Tunnel, but that's just the tip of the infrastructure iceberg. And all over Europe, they've got these futuristic uh, trains that are just zipping across the countryside. And it's very expensive. It's expensive to build and expensive to buy a ticket. Cars, on the other hand, are more competitive. And you can just uh, shop around a little bit from the various car rental companies and surprise yourself at how reasonable it'll be by the week with unlimited mileage. If you're going for 17 days or more, you should look into leasing, which is a clever way to get around some of the taxes and insurance expenses. Would that be done from the United States before you go? Yeah, definitely. You'd want to rent your car from the United States before you go, and your choice is to rent it uh, with the advice of your travel agent. If your travel agent's getting you a plane ticket, they'll probably be happy to help you out with the car rental issues. If if you're more of a do-it-yourself type person, you can just call around a little bit. Now, in my work, much as I try to put everything on a grid and explain to everybody really clearly what's the best deal, you can't do that with car rental rates. To me, those car rental rates are a Rubik's Cube of pricing where they will vary from month to month, country to country, and company to company. So you might find that DER is best for renting a car in Germany, and uh, Europe by car would be much cheaper in Portugal, and budget might be the cheapest in France. Um, Remember, they usually have a a lot of times they have up to a 15% surcharge for picking up the car at an airport, so you can save substantially if you don't pick up the car at an airport. You can also save substantially if you structure your trip in a way, Carolyn, where you are starting and ending in cities where you don't want a car anyways, and then you pick up your car when you're ready to really go to town in the countryside. I see. 
see. So these are issues. And I guess what I was saying is you, you could ask a travel agent to sort through that, or you could just get the 800 numbers for those various car rental companies, spend an hour on the phone, tell them you're going to wherever you're going in, in whatever month, and then they will give you their rates. And from if you know the questions to ask, you can pretty much cobble together um, your options and make the smart choice. A lot of Americans just freak out with the high cost of gas in Europe. But remember, that's not a big deal in the big analysis. Uh, there, I don't care if gas is 5 or $6 a gallon. It doesn't amount to really very much compared to the overall cost of traveling around in Europe. So don't factor that in. How do I find those places then that belong to a local mom-and-pop type arrangement? Okay, so we were talking about transportation, and I was saying that's a good way to get to those mom-and-pop places. It kind of depends on your, um, your travel vision. Where do you plan, what countries do you plan to travel in? Well, we haven't seen enough of Scotland, so I think that's where we're going to go first. Perfect. Scotland is riddled with bed and breakfasts. And I don't even think you want, you know, I write guidebooks and everybody's, a lot of people write guidebooks and they list a few B&Bs. But if you've got a car, all you got to do is drive around and you'll find little impromptu B&Bs in every town. And in the middle of the countryside, you have farmhouse B&Bs. Remember, just like American small family farms are having a, have had a tough time making it, in Europe, it's stacked against the uh, small farms to survive without some extra form of income. And they are now, in many cases, all over Europe, renting out rooms uh, to make ends meet. So you'll find little farms that uh, do their farming, but they rent out rooms as well. And that gives you a wonderful slice of, of uh, look at the culture there in Scotland. So uh, as you're driving around, I would recommend not having reservations and just exploring with your car. And as you come into towns or as you go through beautiful parts of the countryside, look for signs. They just have simple signs on the street corner, about as common as you would see for sale signs in the United States. You will see uh, rooms for rent signs in Scotland. I'm a farm girl. That would please me a great deal to be able to stay with a farm family. Oh, some of the best travel experiences I've had have been in the farmhouse B&Bs in Britain. All along Hadrian's Wall, there's wonderful farmhouse B&Bs, and they've got, and the stepping stones that go from their driveway to their house are stones that were taken right from the old Roman ruins in that area. They're just, they're just drenched in history. They have this wonderful sort of uh, farmhouse hospitality, as you can imagine. Well, I'm a pretty confident traveler, so I'm not afraid to ask, to just ask, so... That's very I, good. I didn't know if I'd have to do it in advance, and I hoped I would not have to. So this is very encouraging. Well, if you have, assuming you have a little bit of time, I w- you know, if you have a short trip and you know you want to see Edinburgh and you know you want to see York and you know you want to see, you know, uh, uh, Stratford, well, then you should nail yourself down. If you're just exploring Scotland for 10 days, I think it's more fun just to blow with the wind up there, and, it's, and you'll be very charmed by the countryside, and you'll meet more people. And um, have a guidebook, have a good map, but also have that free spirit where you can just... Uh, Park your car where you see a sign and knock on the door and see what it's like. I think that sounds like it fits me exactly. And and, and you'll be uh, surprised how, how reasonable that is. And, and uh, Otherwise, Britain is quite expensive. So combining driving with farmhouse B&Bs and pub grub, you'll be able to uh, travel quite reasonably in England. Remember, the pubs are, are in Britain, the pubs are wonderful places for the, the daily um, hot dish. You know, you go right. there for a $15 dinner and you'll be uh, in good company. All right. Well, that's wonderful. Thank you very much for all your information. Thanks for your call, and have a great trip. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. And we got Stephanie on the line in Salt Lake City. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. How are you doing? Great. Thanks. What are your travel plans? I am planning a trip to Scandinavia for um, the summer of 2007 after I graduate college with a couple of friends. Uh-huh. And I was just wondering, I have some relatives in Norway. I have um, my grandma's aunt and her cousins, and then my grandma's sister-in-law actually um, live in Norway because she, her and her husband, her and my grandpa mar- migrated from Norway. So it's pretty closely related to the, some people there. And I was just wondering if it would be okay for me to contact them while I'm there and how long I should stay with them, if that's okay, mm-hmm. like how long it would be so I'm not imposing on them. Wow, you're thinking very good. I, I happen to have relatives in Norway also. My grandparents came over uh, from Norway and homesteaded in Canada, and oh, um, I, I have had a great time going to Norway and visiting relatives. As a matter of fact, I've got beautiful relations with with people in Norway that are quite distant relatives, but they're just always seems to, they always seem to be tickled when their distant cousin from Nor- from America drops by. Uh, I think that's true. You can safely say if you've got reasonable social skills, it's you know, uh, and you don't wear out your welcome, uh, you you would be welcome uh, to visit relatives in Europe, even if they don't know who you are. Send them a postcard or a letter or some photographs of your family or email them and, uh, you know, let them know you're going to be visiting. What I always think is a good idea is give them an an easy out. Don't ask them if you can drop by. Tell them you're going to be visiting the country. And they'll email you back and, and say, we'll have a good time. 
Or they'll email you back and say, you've got to come by. Plan on spending a weekend with us or whatever, you know. And then okay. you can kind of gently feel it out that way. But I would I would imagine that they would love to have you uh, come by and use their place as a base from where you can explore that part of Norway. And uh, there's nothing like uh, having relatives to drop in on to get to know the culture better. Oh, good. Okay. And then um, it's the nice thing that's happened to me that way is that it becomes a cultural exchange. And they come over to the United States and visit with me. And we've gone back and forth since... Uh, well, for 30 years now with my relatives, and it's just been a, a wonderful um, lifelong friendship that we've developed, but we would never have known them had we not had the, the boldness to let them know we're going to visit and see if we're welcome to drop by. Right, okay. Now, you, where are your relatives? Do you know exactly? Yeah, I think it's a small town in um, southwest Norway. I think it's um, called like Sunfjord, Norway. Sonjafjord. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, if they're on Sonjafjord, they're on, I think, the most beautiful fjord. And, oh, great. and from there, you've got all sorts of, you've got, you know, towns and cities to see, but you've also got incredible hiking to do. They've got um, uh, some of the some of Europe's biggest glaciers that you can actually hike on. And there's lots of mountain huts that you can hike from hut to hut. And uh, you've got some opportunities to stay in mountain huts and, and really get into the, the Nor- Norwegian nature, which is just dramatic as can be. Great. That sounds excellent. Good. Enjoy your trip. All right. Thank you very much. Thanks for your call. Nicole is on the phone from Oakland, California. Hello there. How are you? Oh, I'm wonderful. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm just thinking about all these travels that these people are planning. (laughs) Well, see, I always think of you when I travel. I have your book on London. I have your book on France. And currently I have the Amsterdam and Brussels book. But we're going on a tour in Holland, Brussels, and also Luxembourg City. And I'm not seeing as much information as I may like on Luxembourg City. So, what are your C&Ds there? We'll be there today. Whoa, Nicole, you found my dark hole. <laughs> <laughs> I must say. You know you have to study for this one. <laughs> Luxembourg. Um, that's the capital of a country called Luxembourg, right? Yes. yes. Yeah. Um, I don't know anything about... I've been there a few times, you uh-huh. know. And it's um, the, the little country of Luxembourg originated back in uh, early modern times when they were fighting in Europe all the time in these big wars, and, and they were all worried about the balance of power. And after each big war they would divvy up all the land in order to have a, try to maintain a balance of power. And Luxembourg was so strategic that they said, nobody gets Luxembourg. So they made it an independent country, and the condition was it had to stay non-aligned mm-hmm. because it was so well-fortified and so strategic. So today you've got these casemates, which are these military uh, tunnels and fortifications and everything that were sort of state-of-the-art in their day, and they're kind of quite antiquated now, obviously. But that's a fun part of Luxembourg. Um, other than that, people like Luxembourg. I just haven't got there yet. Yeah, and the wine. I hear about their wine, so I'm going to, you know, check that out. Yeah. Of course, we want to sample the local spirits. Oh, yeah. And remember, these little countries, Luxembourg and Belgium in particular, I think are the most Euro-friendly countries. Uh-huh. That's where people are so enthusiastic about the European Union. Yeah. So you'll see a lot of European flags and a lot of uh, Generation E. That's the young people that consider themselves Europeans rather than Luxembourgers. Ah, well, I'm certainly looking forward to I've not been to any of these places yet, so that should be fun and exciting. And your book is giving me a lot of info. But Good. Well, yeah, you know, my book will help you on Belgium and Amsterdam. Yes. Good. Well, I hope that's... And boy, I just love both of those regions. And remember from Amsterdam, side trip out to get a little bit of the Dutch countryside. Yes, most certainly. A little cheese, some wooden shoes. You got it. <laughs> and it, so it just does not disappoint. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you. I always enjoy your shows. I'm up here with KQED and KTEH, so whenever they say you're going to be there, I'm on your email list. I'm oh, sure to get my info from Great. Well, I sure appreciate you keeping me on the air. <laughs> thank you. Have a great time. Bye. Bye now. Sometimes the sign says, please refrain from talking to the bus driver. But Ferdinando Mengi has plenty of stories to tell from the driver's seat. Belgian tour bus driver Ferdi Mengi is our guest, coming right up on Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines, with 4,000 flights to 250 cities in some 40 countries around the world every day. It's easy to book your next flight at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly.
I'm Rick Steves, and this is Travel with Rick Steves, and right now we're traveling by bus. I've led tours for 30 years now, and I know that an essential part of a good tour is a good bus driver. And I've got with me one of my favorite bus drivers in Europe, Ferdinando Mengi. Uh, Ferdi is a, a Belgian. He uh, was originally a, a mine engineer, and then he became a bus driver. And he had such a wonderful rapport with our tour groups that after years of uh, driving buses for us, Ferdi made the unusual leap of going from a bus driver to a tour guide. And today, to, uh, Ferdi leads tours for us at Europe Through the Back Door. But today, we've got Ferdi uh, in our studios to give us an insight into the uh, priorities and concerns and world of the essential part of any good tour, the bus driver. Ferdi, thanks for joining us. All right. It's a pleasure to be here. Ferdi, how long did you drive buses in Europe? I drove, um, I think, since 86. Since 86. Mm-hmm. And you must have driven with us five or six years, something like that. I remember you I think I, Yeah, I started with you in 93, and I drove until 97. Did you learn English actually on the road, or did you take English in school? I probably have a chip for languages. Uh, I grew up with three languages, and then uh, English came pretty quickly to me, driving with Americans. Because you were just big, dealing with yeah, tourists. Yeah, all the time. You go on so a three-week I, tour, you got yeah. 25 Americans on board. Exactly, you and I got an ear for it, probably, and I'm lucky. I don't need to go to school to learn any languages. Belgium is a small country, so you need small. to learn the other languages. You do, because if you cross the border, you think you're an alien, because nobody <laughs> understands my language, of course. Ah, well, it's, uh, it's, I know that you have a wonderful uh, knack for communicating, and I appreciate mm-hmm. that on our buses. Now, what I want to talk about is the world of a bus driver. First of all, you've driven for different companies. There's high-end companies and low-end mm-hmm. companies. Yes, indeed. Yeah, you, drove, you drove for Trafalgar, Globus. Trafalgar. I started uh, with Trafalgar. I remember that very well. And then I did Cosmos. And Cosmos then, is the mass cheap yeah, sort of tour. Cheaper. Good yes, company, good cheap company, tours, no then, problem. And then there's the – I don't think you ever drove for Top Deck, but there's sort of the hippie bus companies yes, in Europe. Yes, I heard of them. I never drove for them. Yeah, so uh, that's where you actually sleep on the bus. They're yes, converted school yes, bus, converted tours. double-decker buses <laughs> yeah, and so on. And, indeed. And then are there – there's some top-end tour companies uh, – Tauk or Maupin Tours and so Tauk, on. Tauk, yeah, very, very top tour. Very expensive, um, expensive very good value. You know, they, uh, do they have buses just like the rest of us mortals? <laughs> or do they jet around? Well, they, they pretty much have the same buses like we do. I right. mean, yeah. So I mean, somebody paying $150 a day or somebody paying $400 a day, they've yep. got essentially the same bus, same, bus. same drivers. Yeah, because now these days you have to understand the bus world you have to keep up with your materials, with your with your with your buses. I mean, you cannot show up with just a old bus, no air conditioning, or nothing. You have to have top quality. So and now buses, there's a standard level of oh quality: yeah. air conditioning, yeah. Oh yeah. toilet on the bus. Yes. I remember my days when I started in the early days. There was still a a, a difference in quality of buses, uh, but now the past five six years, I mean, the quality of the buses improved so much. And then you go from a cheaper tour to a very expensive tour. Those buses are basically the same. Basically the same. Now, talk about safety because we take 6,000 people on our tours every Mm -hmm. year. I mean, Mm -hmm. uh, just sooner or later, it seems like, I mean, knock on wood, our number would get up and we'd have some sort of an accident. But we have never had a single problem. And I I think Mm -hmm. that it's remarkably safe bus travel in Europe. It's it's amazing. It is very safe. Uh, To what Uh, can we attribute that? Because there's a lot of wrecks in Europe, you know. But I I think the bus drivers are good. Yeah, bus drivers are good. They really take care. They know where they park. For example, I'm not saying that they will not break in the bus. I mean, I would be a liar if I would say that. But as far as theft, yeah, yeah, theft and you know break-ins and and stuff. I mean, it can happen, but it's very very. So you got to know where scale. to park. Yeah, you know where to park. You take care. They, you talk around. You pay like in Italy. You pay somebody to guard your bus. So you, you do. There's that. still a mafia in Rome. You pay to oh, park yeah, your bus sure. even today. Oh yeah, really? I've oh, heard yeah. that if you don't pay the mafia in Rome, oh, no. you got to go down to the flea market tomorrow and buy your tires back. You come or, back to your, your bus windshield. and it's on, or your or your windshield. <laughs> yes, it still happens. And right? we bus drive. I mean, when I was a bus driver, I pay off the people, and uh, I did it all the time. Because you got this bus, which must. What does a new bus cost these days? Oh, uh, two, three hundred thousand dollars. Two or three hundred thousand dollars for Easy. a bus. Yeah, oh, yeah. and uh, you park it in Venice. You don't see it for twenty four hours. Yep. Nope. You hope it's there when you come back. Yep. And, it, and the bus drivers, you know, we drive with. I mean, and, and Belgium has a very good reputation and in general in Europe, all by all. And they go back, check their bus. They want to make sure, that, you know, it's their baby, I would say. It, it is really, their oh, baby. Yeah, in fact, yeah. I had drivers in my early days when our mm-hmm. hotels were very bad. Mm-hmm. The driver would rather sleep in his coach oh, than I, sleep I've in I've done it hotel. in a place. I mean, I went in southern France where I knew in Nice, very bad parking. And uh, the guy, I didn't trust him too much. I slept in a bus. For safety reasons. Safety reasons. And I I've, mean, that's what we do. Sure. And yeah. I've had cases where drivers would sleep on the bus just because they like their bus. And my hotel was lousy. <laughs> I remember my friend Guido. He yes. took, his, he yes. took his, his bedding and he says, I go to my bus. <laughs> <laughs> These were the early days. You're right. You're right. So uh, now, now, that was from a, a safety point of view, from a theft mm-hmm. point of view and parking safety. But just from a, 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 a crash point of view, there are um, strict regulations. Oh, gosh. Very strict. 
Tell yes. me about those. There's strict rules. Number one, you cannot drive longer than eight hours a day. That's one reason. That's one Eight hours strict. total. Total. That Over means what? four hours. You have to stop for at least 45 minutes. You have to take a break. Uh-huh. Whatever you do, line, but you have to stop the vehicle. Another four hours, you drive. And then that's, you call the day. Okay. Now there is there, you have to be careful if you can if you start at six o'clock in the morning, and you still drive eight hours, but you're still busy at midnight. That's not allowed. And how do because they enforce the, that? Well, that you have a tachograph, the tachometer, which is built in your speedometer, and every policeman all over Europe can pull you over. And Anytime. there's a little disc. Hmm? You take it out, and it shows you exactly how many hours you've driven, what speed you've driven, because there's also a speed limit, which is also very safe. And they can go back to seven days because you have to keep your disc for the past seven days. They can give you a ticket for, that happened seven days ago that you went too fast, like you went over 100 kilometers an hour, and they give you a ticket for it. Is it foolproof? Oh, yeah. There's you no cannot, way to horse around with it. No, not, you cannot horse around with it. What you can do is you can maybe put a there, – there's two disc conductors. Normally, you can drive with two drivers ah. for those people who drive overnight. You know, there's, okay. there's companies driving – People, for example, from Belgium to Spain, which is about a 20-hour drive. With so the eight-hour limit, you'd need yeah, two drivers. but they use two or three drivers. So each driver has his own disc. I see. Now, the Autobahns are famous for having no speed limits. Mm-hmm. And Americans have to ju- uh, adjust when they come home after driving 120 miles an hour on the freeway. Yeah, yeah. You come home and it's a you know 90 miles an hour or 80 miles an hour. It seems mm-hmm. like crawling. Mm-hmm. But buses have a speed limit. What yes, is it is all over Europe. It's uh, 63 miles an hour. That's see? officially. It's 100. It's 100 kilometers an hour, and really? that's everywhere. Okay, all so over buses Europe. will not be going faster mm-hmm. than 63. And they all have governors now. Since uh, three years, you cannot go any faster. Or it just no. won't go faster. It won't go faster. Even you can you put your two feet on the pedal. It won't. <laughs> I didn't know that. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, yeah. What about alcohol consumption? Drivers are on the road a long time. Everybody's partying. Uh, must be tough to uh, have strict alcohol rules as a coach driver. Mm. Oh, yeah. Um, when I was a driver, I made the rule of myself, and, and most of the drivers, I would say 99% of the drivers know that. Mm-hmm. I was one of the drivers who never drank. Mm-hmm. I said, I do my work. Mm-hmm. I'm there as a driver, mm-hmm. and I take it very seriously. Of course, during your work day, you can't. But no. if you're responsible and they drink lightly the night before, that's mm-hmm. legal and permissible. Uh, to a certain extent, you cannot just get totally, you no. know, no, you don't want to get completely drunk. No, but, but I you mean, can socially, drink, you can drink. Oh, yeah, socially, you can drink a yeah. couple of beers. That's fine. It's totally acceptable. Uh, in America, mm. we have a certain amount of alcohol in our blood that is per- permitted or impermissible. Mm. In I, I know in Norway, because I was just there, the, the level is zero, absolutely yeah. zero alcohol in your mm-hmm. blood. I think that's stricter than Europe in general, isn't oh, it? Oh, yeah. It's, it's, I think it's 0. 0.5 now. Is it, what is it? 0. Okay. 0.05. Yeah. Hey, when you're talking about traveling in Europe, um, it's business, and mm-hmm. guides are made mo- making money, and coach driver, and uh, you're paid straightforward by the tour company. Plus, you you supplement your income with uh, income from tips, from mm-hmm. kickbacks on shopping, and from sightseeing sold. Is that right? Explain uh, how that works. Because a bus driver cannot live on the money he makes no. from his tour company. Well, it's attractive to a bus driver driving for Trafalgar. Uh, or Cosmos or Insight, just name them. They're all pretty much the same concept. Of course, if you drive for Trafalgar, you make more money. There's top tours. I was lucky when I, I drove Trafalgar, I did top tours. That means these are the nice tours. Nice tours meaning the more expensive tours, expensive tours the higher class hotels, travelers, I mean, they spend more money oh, shopping, yeah, yes. spend more money tipping. And, and of course, the whole focus was on the, on the kickback from the guide. I mean, he, for example, Luzerne, he stopped at the Rolex place. I mean, I remember the time in the 90s or, or late 80s, you know, 20 Rolexes were sold. Can you imagine a one right? bus? You yeah. take 50 people into a Rolex shop yeah, and you buy 20 Rolexes. 20, and this were usually Chinese, Asian people, Chinese, right. and they with a lot of money. So they go to Switzerland and they're going to buy a Rolex. Yeah. And, and their and, guide and, explains where they should buy it. Yeah. And that this price is good if you yeah. buy it during the yes, next half yes, an hour. Exactly. And he comes out with, with a bunch of money. What's the standard kickback for something 20%. like that? 20%. 20%. Yeah, $5,000 Rolex Ooh. for one. You have 20, it's 100,000. Does the guide keep all that or split it with the driver? Normally, if you got a good guide, I was, like I said, I was very lucky. Maybe I was a very good diplomat. I mm-hmm. always made sure that I was on a good level with the guide. Of course, this is your money-making thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, he, he awarded me always very well. But I heard stories from other drivers. They got nothing. Yeah. I mean, he collected, I mean, maybe yeah. too greedy. Right. He got $20,000 for 
or, wow. or $10,000 just for a stop. Now, this is its nothing criminal about it. It's just no. important for consumers to yep. know that when your guide takes you shopping, he's taking you shopping not out of the goodness of his heart, but he's yep. making money. Yep. And uh, right. these a lot of guides are very good at making sure you don't have time enough to shop around and know what the going rate mm-hmm. is. I think a lot of tour companies realize that and they don't pay their guides up front or they just give them a token wage. Mm-hmm. And the guide makes his real money off of oh, the kickbacks, kickbacks of from shopping. Yep. So there's income from tips, kickbacks from shopping, and selling sightseeing. Sightseeing, the optionals. Like right, all the, the optionals. Options. That's what they sell at the beginning of the tour. They uh, explain how the tour is going to work. So There's a 20-day tour. We have 20 optionals. Uh, every optional this is 30, 40 bucks a crack. 20 for this, 30 for this. And then they sell it right there. And he comes around with a visa machine, cluck, cluck, and he collects the money right there. 50 people on the bus. Are you yeah. going to go see the windmills? $20 yeah. each, that's $1,000. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's good money. Yeah. That's oh, serious yeah. money. They've got to be a good salesperson. Yes, exactly. You need to be a good salesperson and you make a good living. So tour guides are good at making money and they don't get their real income from the tour company. No. They get it from the clients on the course of their oh, trip. Oh, pay is very low. I, I, I heard that they paid – some companies pay like 10 pounds a day. 20 bucks a day then, yeah. Yeah, for a, for a guide. And what no guide's going to work on that. But a good guide makes three, four, five hundred dollars $500 a day, I would think. Oh, easy. Yeah, if they've and got more. A, and I, I think the, the clientele determines how much his potential income is. Oh, yeah. You got British people, you got Australians, you got Americans. Yep. How, how do guides and bus drivers characterize the difference between the Oh, there's a huge difference. Tell me about that. Um, I remember in my days when I drove, Australians are the worst. Why? I mean, I, I respect Australians. They fund people. We're talking I, about making money on kickbacks. <laughs> yeah, they're the worst. Why is that? So I'm a guy, I, you're a guide, I'm the driver. And we got 50 Australians. You know what, what you as a guy going to say, well, 30, don't expect too much on this tour. The Australians will spend. They spend money on beer. That's why they spend their money. And but there's no kickbacks on, kickback on beer. Americans were in between. Uh, I'm talking about the good years, the 60s, the 70s, when the dollar was strong. Unfortunately, today, we cannot say that. But in those days, and the Americans bought everything. I remember my colleague saying, what optionals? We buy everything. It doesn't matter. You know, there was four marks in the time for a dollar and such stuff. So the guide says at the beginning of the tour, we got 12 optionals here. They're 30 yeah. bucks each. Anybody yeah. not want them? And they just all buy them. They all buy them. In those days when the, when the dollar was strong. Yeah. Now people really count their pennies. Yeah. The strongest people still today are the Asians, Chinese, Most Taiwanese. profitable. Yeah, because, you know, you have, you, you have two classes. You have the poor class and the rich class. There's no middle class. So yeah. if you got those people coming over, they usually are people the wealthy with money. people, yeah. And they, they buy. I mean, I, I had a tour with, with kids, 21-year-olds, and they bought Versace Gucci suits, three, four of them. Wow. These and were kids out of, you know, still in college, but they had a credit card from the parents, and, and they bought. Kickbacks on all that to oh, the guides, yeah, but guy. with the driver. 20% standard. Well, it, 15%. Yeah. But yeah, I remember in Switzerland, Verdi, mm-hmm. um, as soon, every, every tour guide knew and bus driver knew where to park your bus in Lucerne mm-hmm. for Swiss clocks. Mm-hmm. And you got like $50 when you parked the bus and a bottle of champagne as a welcome. Yeah, that, 45 yeah. minutes later, everybody's done their shopping. They're back in the bus. Mm-hmm. You go into the back room yeah. and you get your cut from yep. what your group bought that day. Yes, yes, yes. That's how it works. It's powerful. Yep. Okay. And the same thing with the, with the Rolex watch. There was, the, there was a connection. There was like a sign between me and the guide. I picked up the people and I pretend I was – Picking the guy back up, I told the people the guy would be right better. But in the meantime, that I made a loop, you went back in the store and got the envelope. That was it. Yeah, that's how quick it went. And it uh-huh. had to be sort of disguised from the group. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I could. We could never ever tell the tour members. No. Don't tell about the kickback. But I, I think that more and more people now nowadays they understand that they understand that how it works. Yeah. More and more people. With uh, my tour groups, I tried to negotiate a deal with the glass factories in Venice and so on. Where I don't want the kickback. I want my groups just to pay the net rate, the eighty yeah. percent. And because I thought, you know, I was getting we in our company, we make the money up front, and I didn't want to make the kickback. Uh, but the but the glass people didn't want to get into that. They didn't want to discount the glass. They just didn't want to play yeah, that game. Yeah, want to Yeah. So yeah. it's, uh, it's important for the uh, tourists to understand what's going on in that regard. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of optional sightseeing that goes on. In your uh, estimate, what do you think are the good value options? What are the bad value options? You've got the night excursions and, uh, you know, the, the floodlit stuff. Uh, you've got the historic drives in the morning. You've got the visits to the museums. Do you think some of them are better than others? Yeah, I'm sh- I do believe that. I think that every optionable, optional sorry, optional is, is worth it's, – it's money. I, I think it is. Um, um, they pay for it. And they drive them around. They show them. They sometimes have dinners included. I think the night ones, uh, the illumination tours, like they call it, I like those. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, the tours in Russia, for example, see the Red Square lit up All at night, up. which is beautiful. 
And a lot of tour companies, they rely on this money, so they will conveniently park the groups outside of town with their hotel. Oh, yeah. That's yeah. very Because well the, ho- thought. the hotel is cheaper. Yeah. You've got 50 rooms. Everybody can get a double. And big hotels. I mean, where do you go? Four or five stars. I mean, part and, of that. And sure. what do you do after dinner? There's nothing to do nope. except pay 40 exactly. bucks. Exactly. Get and back you, on the bus. Oh, yeah. You'd be happy to pay tour. it. And the guide explains that all. He's a very good salesman. He so knows. The, the consumer should look very carefully at the tour brochure and see where is the hotel. If it says Florence area... That could, outside. that could be halfway to Bologna. Because they would definitely market if it's center because it's a good sales point. Now, the problem with all of these conflict of interest built in is it gets in the way of your priorities for sightseeing. I know it's very frustrating for some guides who want to take their groups in Amsterdam to see Van Gogh mm-hmm. because the tour company instructs them that you don't have enough time for Van Gogh because you've got to see – got to go to the diamond polishing place. Exactly. There's no kickbacks on Van Gogh. No kickbacks on diamonds. Exactly. All these people, all these dear people just wait all their lives to oh, buy diamonds in Amsterdam, don't they? Yeah. I, I, they a lot no of people, idea. they land on Turkey and they get one day in their life in the Turkish mainland, they spend it in carpet shops. <laughs> yeah, it's a shame. Because yeah. their guide is actually a carpet salesman yep. in disguise. You're right. Which I think is really a shame. So what we're interested in is encouraging people to think of buses as an efficient way to get around. Bus tours can be a great value. Lots of fun. Always. Safe drive. Good With hotels. the right company, Perfect. And equip yourself with a guidebook so you can skip out of things and, yes. and be a little bit independent. Yes. And it's important no. to keep your tour guide happy. If the tour guide pouts, he can give you less on the tour. Of course. So it's an artful thing. You don't want the tour guide to take no. advantage of you. No. But you've got to keep him honest. Yeah, yeah. You know, a lot of tours sell really well because they promise too much. You know, there's only uh, 24 hours in a day. And right. some tours get going so fast yeah. that bus drivers have a nickname for these tours. They call I them. call them pajama tour. Pajama tours? Yes. Why do you call them that? Well, you don't have time to get in all your pajamas. You better keep them on. You know, you have a wake-up call at 6 o'clock. You enter your hotel at uh, 7, and you have just time to barely use the toilets. At 7.15, you have to be back out. Uh, dinner, uh, illumination tour. And by midnight, you're back in your hotel, and, and you have those pajama tours. They stay one night. You know what? They, they sell a tour that called the highlight of a tour, Florence. You spend three hours in the city. Is that a highlight? Oh. I mean, one night. And you stay outside the city. You walk two hours with a local guide. You have dinner in Fiesoli, which is outside of Florence. And the next day, you have a 6 o'clock wake-up call. You go to Nice, 12-hour drive. Big, pro- <laughs> big problem for me is a series of one-night stands. Yeah. That's a uh, pajama that, tour. Then you might as well keep your pajamas on. Yes. So for me, even as a tourist, not even a tour guide, I know that you need to have a happy and supportive bus driver to have a good tour. Mm-hmm. Ferdy, tell me uh, concerns and peeves that bus yeah. drivers might have and how a tourist can, can really support the bus driver and have a better tour because of yeah, that. Yeah, they have, they have some peeves there. Um, for example, keep his bus clean because you have to understand that the driver, this is his home. He spent more time in the bus than in his living room. Um, ice cream on the bus? Oh, yeah, ice cream. It, it's a thing, European thing. They don't like it. They they uh, they hate it, they because you have to understand. It's also in the summer. This bus is, is is hot. You're standing in the sun. You walk in with a big ice cream. It melts like an instant. And who's cleaning up tonight and when everybody's driver, having a good you know, time? And it's, and it's sticky and then French fries, for example. And you see those stickers on a bus. No the sticker with a slash. Yeah. No ice cream. No fries. Ah, uh, really? Yes. More from Ferdy Mengi, who has delighted hundreds of American visitors to Europe with his charm and skill as a tour bus driver and a guide, coming up shortly as we travel with Rick Steves. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. Email us at radio at ricksteves.com. I'm talking with veteran tour bus driver Ferdinando Mengi, who's telling us all the ins and outs of working with American tour groups. I'm a proponent of smart travel, and a lot of people think that means exclusively independent. But going on a bus has certain economies and efficiencies built into it. And uh, for my business, if I can talk 25 people into sharing one vehicle, one big tour bus with a driver, rather than getting 25 rental cars or getting 25 rail passes, mm-hmm. hey, that's very efficient. Of and there's course. more than enough savings there for me to be plenty profitable as a tour company. Mm-hmm. And if everything else is just a wash, eating, sleeping, sightseeing, and so on, it can be a great value for the travelers as well as profitable business for the tour company. 
The trick is for travelers to understand if they want to go independently, they have that option. Anybody smart enough to be listening to us right now has what it takes intellectually to make it around Europe without being spoon-fed by a tour guide. Mm -hmm. But if you want to let somebody else do the driving, if you want to have somebody figure out the hotels for you, a guided tour can be a very smart and economic decision for anybody planning on touring Europe. Yeah. Uh, does that make any sense to you, Ferdy? Yeah, it does. Um, <clears throat> what I usually say, um, ask people, um, if you want to do it on your own, how much time you have? That's a very good aspect. I mean, if you only have two weeks and you want to do it on your own, you've never been to Europe, you're not going to see much. I Europe figure is, you accomplish 30% more per day when you take yeah, a well-organized bus tour. Exactly. That's, that's one very important point. You don't have to worry how to get there. The guide, the driver, they know exactly where they're going. They know exactly the spot. They know exactly the timing. The logistics are perfect. I mean, you, uh, you have optimal use of your time. Yeah. And these days, time is worth It's and a limited money. commodity, just yes. like money. Yeah, yes, absolutely. Exactly. Yeah. Now, Ferdy, a lot of change in the last couple of decades for uh, all the technical innovations for bus travel in Europe. Uh, we've got uh, whisper systems, we've got cell phones, we've got iPods and so on. Talk a little bit about how travel has changed for bus drivers. It, uh, it changed a lot. I mean, again, I always refer myself to it because I started in the, in the days when the revolution took place and, and from the old buses to the newer buses. And I remember my new bus, I guess, was like, wow, state of the art. And if you see the buses today, it's like, wow. Aircon is standard. Uh, it's all standard. You can't now. take a bus around here without no. air conditioning. You got toilets in the buses. Toilets in the buses. But you don't use them like routinely. If you no, this is them. an emergency thing. I mean, and I'm glad we have those. You never know what problem you might have eating the too many gelatos in Italy. Who knows? You know, a tour guide knows he can only go as far as his smallest bladder. Smallest bladder, and I, I love that sentence. Yeah. Uh, people always laugh with that. But exactly, yeah, you have the toilets. You have great CDs. So new buses in the future, I would oh. imagine, will have iPods. Tour guides yeah. will come with their, their own uh, music list. Oh, gosh, Plug yes. their iPod in. Yeah, plug it in. and then Crossing the, the Danube River. Yep. Oh, yeah. Blue just Danube. One Boop. It's right there. Leaving Rome. Yes. Arrivederci yes. Roma. Roma. Exactly. <laughs> Crossing into France. Yes, yes. Marseille. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it improved a lot. And it's so much easier. The whisper system, for example. Wow. What, Explain what, what, this whisper system. The whisper is, is something that, that I love to use. Some, some guides don't like it. They, they like to hear their voice. But a whisper system, if you do a museum, for example, and you have this... You're talking as a tour guide. Yeah, as a tour guide. Now, explain it. Is the tourists all have a little headset, and the guide can just whisper, and everybody exactly. hears Exactly, and you have a little microphone just dangling off your breast there, and, and you, you don't have to scream. You just talk with a slow voice, and you explain oh. everything. And, and some people can be actually in another room, and they still hear you. Yeah. Well, well, if you talk uh, without a whisper system, you have to kind of get the people together. They're right in your face. Oh. And I was perpetually hoarse trying to scream above the traffic in Rome. Oh, yeah. Talking at Rome is oh, so gosh. difficult. Oh, gosh. I mean, yeah. I mean, and I got a very carrying voice, but still. So the whisper system is a new oh, innovation. It's, it's makes life perfect. Good. That's Cell technology. phones. Tour guides have cell phone connection with their bus drivers. Yes. I was the first one who, who had the cell phone as a European. Remember uh, in the old days, going around and around, <laughs> waiting for the group to come out of <laughs> yes. Anne Frank's house or whatever. No, it's cell phone. It makes our life so easy. We just, uh, yeah. A lot of Thank travelers consider their bus driver just like a Sherpa, and they're down there hauling out the gear and everything. Mm -hmm. Is that part of the job, or what do you think about that? Yeah, it's part of the job. I mean, and I think that the majority, I would nearly say 99%, take the job very seriously, mm -hmm. the drivers, and it's, it's part of the job. Yeah. And then when you stop for lunch or dinner, some tour companies actually require that bus drivers and guides eat apart from the group? Yes, some companies do. Why the, would that be? Well, I, I try to... Find out the reason. I never actually is found it the answer. It's because they're getting better food than the than the masses. That's one. But is it I because think, they don't want them fraternizing. Yes, and I, I'm afraid that they would maybe talk too much, yeah. and the guides maybe are afraid that the driver will talk and then say, "Yeah, you know, you know, drivers they're very very outgoing they, and they like socializing." Right. I missed it. You drove tours for us for six or seven years, yeah. and we wanted the drivers. Oh, to, guys, I love that. I mean, for for us, drivers were part of the family. Yes, almost yes. literally. We had several of our drivers marry our tourists. <laughs> yeah. But but we wanted our our drivers to have dinner with yeah. our groups, yeah. and I just loved that aspect of it. But uh, a sad irony is that's not the case for standard big no. bus tours. Still today, they still eat separate, and and uh, they they have different food. I mean, it's it's. The tours I'm doing here, um, I, I like them better. It's more family style, and I don't like this kind of um, hiding and, and, and this kind of uh, – yeah. I don't well, like it. I like to be open. There's the people. I mean, the people pay for that tour, yeah. and I believe in that. Now, one thing on the road for bus drivers is you're dealing with these tour groups. Every two weeks, a new group coming mm -hmm. and going. And uh, it must be a little difficult. From Drivers are human beings, mm -hmm. and uh, they're lonely or mm -hmm. they are attracted to somebody and so on. 
what is the standard among drivers? Just, I mean, you must have all sorts of stories about romances on the road and ways to amuse oh, gosh, yourself yeah. and so on. And bus drivers are impressive <laughs> people. Yeah. Uh, is that a, a difficult thing for drivers? I don't see it directly as a difficult thing for a driver. It's um, it's adventurous. I mean, for some drivers, for sure. Um, also for the probably tough member. for married life if you're on the road with all these uh, yeah. happy-go-lucky tourists. <laughs> it is, uh, and you will see that a lot of drivers are usually single. I was single, right? Not for that reason, but I was. I thought it was easier. Maybe they became single. Or became single as well. I mean, you know, it, 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 how you say it's um, when you're married. It, it, there's there's a little conflict. In your private life, I mean, you, it's not easy, right? And there's uh, there's a lot of promiscuousness on the road in Europe. That's for sure. Well, we we, we are very liberal, right? The Europeans think very open, and uh, it doesn't mean that every European is just having affairs. Because I hear that that the Americans they they say that in, in Europe everybody has an affair or has a lover. It's not. I mean, right. let me tell you, uh, I'm married now. If my wife found out that I would have the slightest thing, I would that would be. <laughs> yeah. Big, I mean, it's, but it's not that. I mean, uh, but it, it is promiscuous in a way and very, very liberal. Yes, we, we are very free thinking. Ferdinando Mengi. <laughs> I love that name. Yes. Ferdinando, that's an Italian. Oh, yes. no, Italian name, but half, you're Belgian. Yeah, half Italian, half Belgian. You're yep. a European. European. And you're a great tour guide. Thank you, Rick. Thank you for joining us. Hey, Happy my travels. pleasure. All righty. I'm Rick Steves, and this is Travel with Rick Steves. And right now, I want to mix a little romance with travel, so I've invited Jennifer Cox into our studios. Jennifer has written a book called Around the World in 80 Dates. She spent six months in 18 different countries dating 80 guys looking for Mr. Right. And a fascinating book that she's written. And I want to talk to her about some practical tips on women um, traveling around the world enjoying a little romance. Uh, Jennifer, thanks for joining us. <laughs> that is my pleasure. It's wonderful to be here. What a wonderful, <laughs> wonderful uh, expertise you've developed here. It is It is extraordinary. I'm not quite sure how it happened, but I think if you do go around the world in 80 dates, it is like organizing 80 holidays in one go. So the logistics behind love, it, it takes a lot of underpinning. <laughs> and if, even if somebody's just going to Spain and Portugal on six dates. Sure, you absolutely. You know, the same sort of thing happens. Or Mexico on two dates. Yeah. Or well, across town on one date. <laughs> Travel opens our eyes, not just to the world in general, but who we can be when we're away from our routines, when we're away from the things that make us forget about the opportunities in life. When you start traveling, suddenly you feel a whole new person. And you're dabbling in, in, in different cultures, which carbonates things. I mean, all Absolutely. of a sudden people have a different um, uh, feeling about time and a different feeling about uh, uh, music and a different feeling about uh, romance and truth and uh, and families and uh, morality and all sorts of things. Exactly. You're not surrounded by all the decisions that you've made. And I always think travel is like an assertiveness training course with great geography. Now, you're, you're English. You yep. grew up in Australia? Um, I, I was brought up in Britain, but then I moved to Australia and I lived there for my 20s. Dated 80 guys, fell in love with a guy actually in Nevada at the Burning Man Festival. Now uh -huh. you live in Seattle. And uh, let's just talk about traveling because you spent six months on the road. Yep. And looking, judging by the cover on your, on your book here, you, you were looking good on the road. Um, give, <laughs> Thank give, you. give us some tips on how a, a woman on the road can not look like she just got out of a, a crumpled suitcase. What are your basic packing tips for women well, wanting to look sexy on the road? Well, exactly. I think that's, I mean, the crumpled point is a very important one. You can't take every outfit for every occasion. And so firstly, that whole little black dress situation, you need a few clothes that don't get crumpled and that you can basically mix and match so that you've got the skirt that goes with two different tops and also goes with the pants that goes with the t-shirt. You can dress it up and you can dress it down, but it doesn't take a lot of ironing. And then, and then the other thing is, it's crazy, organize the date to suit the clothes you have. For example, I didn't go on any dates hiking because I didn't have room for my hiking boots. Okay, now you went when you went, you went for weeks at a time. Exactly. And you would have a, a number of dates every three or four days, I suppose. Yeah, sometimes twice a day. Twice a day. 
Talk about toiletries. What did you learn about toiletries? Okay, well, I mean, to be very girly about it, you need a good moisturizer because you're on planes a lot of the time and moisturizers plump up your skin so you look less tired. They stop you getting sunburnt. Um, very basic makeup because if you put on tons of mascara and then you sleep on a plane, you end up with big panda eyes. So the important thing is simple Keep it simple. And also, I traveled with the sun. And so when you travel with the sun, you don't need a lot of sweaters. And the sun brings a bloom to your skin. And you do blossom when it's warm. And so I think, it's again, it's tailoring the situation you know, to your limitations. Even I blossom when it's warm <laughs> and I'm out there in the sunshine. I, I look better when I'm traveling because I'm exercising and I'm tan and I'm just... I feel good about life. Exactly. And that's, those are good points. I mean, firstly, in terms of exercising, I did take my running shoes with me mm-hmm. and I, I did stretches every morning and I went running every day if I could, but if not, at, at least sort of three or four times a week, just a little jog. helps you feel younger. I, I think so. Now, you dated 80 men. How did, what impressed the men? I mean, did they want lots? Did they want makeup? Did they care about your hair? Did they care about your shoes? What, what did you feel? Because you had enough experience to go, well, that didn't work with him and so on. Sure. What, 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 what worked with the men? What worked with the men was feeling they had organized a good date. Do you know, the funny thing mm. is when you're dating a guy, especially in the situation that I was in, they were so self-conscious about what the other dates might have arranged. Their concern was really just putting on the best possible date. It was almost like until they met me, they'd forgotten a woman was involved at all. Okay. And so they'd turn up with this huge yacht and bottles of champagne, and then they'd meet me and they'd be all shy and bashful. And So, so your, your main thing was to let them be good at dating. Exactly. I had wow. this thing that the first 30 minutes, they suffer from DRI, which was date reality impact. They suddenly remembered there was a woman involved and they'd go to pieces. Oh, how I, did you make them comfortable then? What did you do? I'd ask them lots of questions, which is what women should always do on dates. They so if, should, a, if a woman is, is actually at least acting like they're interested in the guy, yeah. he gets to talk and he, he gets more comfortable. Exactly. And more confident. And then it goes from there. And then, and then you can just genuinely relax and chat. Now, I'm talking with Jennifer Cox, who's written a book called Around the World in 80 Dates. And she's learned a lot about different cultures and romance in different cultures. And it's all covered in her 370-some page book. You know, there must be cultural faux pas. I remember way back in my single days... I was dating this uh, Japanese woman in Europe, and I got her in the most romantic spot. It was the uh, Rialto Bridge in, in Florence. You're looking vaguely traumatized I'm by lo- I'm saying this, Rick. <laughs> yeah, and I asked her if I could kiss her, and she burst into laughter because guys aren't supposed to ask if they can kiss somebody. They just do in it. In Japan, they yeah. just do it. What sort of cultural faux pas did you find you were dealing with when you were dealing with guys from 18 different countries? Sure. I mean, firstly... I think in a lot of coming from Britain, women are very assertive and feel that they're allowed to do whatever they want. And so firstly, I had to learn to let guys take the lead. I had to learn to let them speak first because it's it's they have to feel confident and people um, from certainly less developed cultures, um, you know, ones where women aren't necessarily working, saying parts of the Middle East or Africa, certainly North Africa. The idea of a strong, assertive woman, guys just don't know what to make of it. And it's not, they're not being horrible. They're not meaning to put you down. They just don't have the experience of it. Um, in China, the guys were fascinated by my body. They just, you know, because I don't look Chinese. I'm five foot eleven. Because you're tall. You're a head taller than anybody Super else. Super tall. There. I had some businessman called Tan email me and say, I can't wait to meet you, a Western woman, you with your fuller figure and more voluptuous breasts. Wow. I know. And I, I'd been comfort eating a lot at that point. <laughs> but even that, I looked down and thought, I'm sorry, I, I, I don't know that I could live up to this pressure. With your fuller figure. So cultural, cultural uh, adjustments are something when you're traveling and when you're meeting these guys. And uh, I remember from uh, my experience in the developing world, the men there, they think there's, uh, there's three kinds of people. There's men, there's their women, and then there's Western women. Absolutely. Their women are, like you said, uh, follow the lead and, yep. and so on. And the Western women, they got these, you know, they got their short pants, their backpacks, oh. the more money than they'll ever be able to shake a stick at. I they got know. the world by the tail. It must be quite a stressful thing for some of these men to be dealing with these um, in command, yeah. wealthy, independent women from the first world. One of the things I learned very early on when I was traveling is that the further forward you step, 
the further back everybody steps from you. So if you wear a tiny pair of shorts and a teeny T-shirt, you will draw a ton of attention to yourself and you will not be in a position to observe how normal life works. And that's the key to safe travelling for women. You step back, you see what the cultural norms are and then you slip into the local slipstream, the way that local people live and behave. That is brilliant. Now, I've had a lot of women tell me that they just get so hustled and, and harassed by men in the Mediterranean world. It's this, I just get this feeling that the Mediterranean world is just filled with, with horny bachelors that chase girls like dogs chase cars. And I think a lot of times the American tourists that are there send out these encouraging vibes unknowingly. Yeah, they don't, they don't understand. The thing is, the problem is when we travel, we don't feel connected, so we don't feel responsible. So we feel we can dress as we like mm. because we're not at home and also it's warm, probably, mm. and you want to go to suntan. You're mm. very self-centered mm. and you're very um, venal in the way that you want to be pleased. Um, and, of course, you're probably richer than most local people, so you feel very powerful. And that's sending out messages that are misunderstood by it, local men. Exactly. And, consequently, they will hustle a woman that puts her off. One of the things that I think you have to accept as a woman when you travel, especially, I mean, I spent a long time traveling on my own, sort of through Libya and Russia and lots of places where it can be quite hard, is that you are not going to change local culture just because you feel that women deserve more respect. It's not going to happen. That's the key to success. Exactly. For women traveling in the developing world or the macho world. Exactly. All right. Hey, we're talking with Jennifer Cox, who's written a book called Around the World in 80 Dates, and we're exploring the wonders of mixing a little romance with travel. Jennifer, thank you so much for joining us, and I'm sure you've got a lot of people's uh, wheels turning about how they can mix a little uh, a little uh, romantic adventure into their next uh, travel adventure. One of the things I hope I've done is made them realize that you should have ambition for love. We know how to get a great job. We know how to organize a wonderful holiday. Think that you are also allowed to organize and expect a wonderful romance, and maybe you will just be able to do that too. And you did exactly that. You, you mentioned that you, you, you uh, loved your work, but you hated your love life, and now you took that as, an, as a goal, and you fixed it, and it took you six months, and you traveled all over the world, but now you're happy with your love life. I feel incredibly fortunate. I feel blessed, because a good relationship, that's the most amazing journey of them all. I think that's a, a, a pretty wise and, and quite <laughs> inspirational. Thanks a lot for joining us. Oh, that is my pleasure. Thank you, Rick. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. There's more online in the radio section at ricksteves.com, where you can look up information on this and other programs in this series. Join us next time as we travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly.